All right. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Citizens Take Action podcast. Um, it's been a little while. I was traveling in D.C. and have been working on a book draft that I will tell you more about in future episodes. Intriguing. <laughs> I hope so. Um, but we're back, and the voice you just heard is someone who's Fast approaching co-host status, though I've done some wonderful interviews with guests without him, is John Landis back uh, from the Bird Law Group and Citizens Take Action board member. Thank you for joining us once again, John. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. And we're going to go over a few different things today. Uh, No matter what you're interested in, you should find something that piques your curiosity because we're going to talk about the plan to fix the Electoral College and an update on where that stands and recent progress, um, publicly financed elections in Los Angeles, as well as addressing some of the most common arguments against campaign finance reform so that they'll come in handy if you need them. Um, So let's start off with the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact or the plan to elect our next president by popular vote rather than through the electoral college the way that we're used to. John, there's been progress recently in a number of states, but first, do you want to give a quick reminder of what the compact is or do you want me? It's actually pretty simple mathematically. So as many of you know, if you're 538 readers or electoral college math fans, the total amount of Electoral votes is 538, which means mathematically the amount needed to win an election is 270. So what the compact intends to do is to come up with a system where once the number of states whose electoral votes total 200 over 270 have reached that amount, they will agree amongst themselves that they will vote, that those states will vote based on how the popular vote is. Like, let's say, hypothetically, Michigan. Let's say, hypothetically, as in 2016, Michigan, as a state, voted Republican, but the national popular vote was Democrat. If Michigan was a signatory to the national popular vote interstate compact, what that would mean is Michigan would vote for the Democrat candidate, not the Republican candidate, as a signatory to the compact, or obviously could be vice versa. This is a nonpartisan effort that is intended just to change our system from what it currently exists, where in, say, as in 2016, a candidate could win by over 3 million votes in the popular vote and still not be elected because of electoral college math. So yeah, so the compact is an agreement between states to award their electoral votes in their state to the winner of the national popular vote. I think you described it quite accurately. And heading into this 2019 year or the recent legislative session, I believe there were 10 or 11 or 10 states in the District of Columbia that had already signed on to the compact. So even though many people hadn't heard of it, it had made significant progress Um, but we've made additional progress in 2019. So yeah, can you tell us more about kind of where things stood and how the compact has progressed this year? So we've seen pretty steady progress. The first state to ever adopt the compact was in 2007. That was Maryland. And we sort of see pretty steady progress. After 2014, there was a gap of about four years where no states 
signed on for whatever reason, maybe partially because it was the run up to the presidential election and then, you know, dealing with the aftermath of that election result. But in 2018, we started to see progress again with Connecticut signing on. And then in 2019, progress has ramped up considerably. Colorado, Delaware, New Mexico, and Oregon all signed on. I would would say Colorado is especially noteworthy. Prior to Colorado, I would classify all of the states that are, and including D.C., that had signed on to the compact as being states that have been fairly blue as in Democrat states over like recent, you know, recent electoral history. Colorado is the first state I would classify as a swing state. And that's important because as we move forward, if you look at the list of states that still have not signed on, pretty much all of them I would classify as falling into the category of either swing states or red states. So we added... There have been four states that have signed on to the compact this legislative session. Um, What does that bring the vote total to? Because as you said, we need 270 electoral votes for the compact to go into effect. So after those four states, what's the total? After those four states, we are currently at 196, which means we would need states totaling 74 electoral college votes. Another thing that I don't know if we noted yet, the compact only takes effect when the 270 is reached, and that's for very obvious reasons. States don't want to sign on to a compact that's going to say, like, when they're still at 196, that they're bound by this compact, even though it doesn't have enough total states to be in effect. So they only want to be bound by this once the threshold is reached, that they can actually decide an election based on this. You know, as you brought up, it's a good point that Colorado, you know, a so-called purple state, was one of the recent uh, states to sign on. And I don't like thinking of states as colors, just a personal opinion. I feel like it's sort of unfair to whoever the minority party is in that state. Like, I feel badly for Republicans in California or Democrats in Texas when California is called blue and Texas is called red. I think all states are shades of shades of colors. But that's just a that's just a personal aside. Um, But it's important that we're getting swing states or so-called purple states on board. And I've seen that the compact has passed in at least one house of the state legislature and even some red states in the past. For people who may be you know, supportive of the compact, living in different parts of the country, what are the next states that are considered the most likely or seem to have the, the best prognosis for uh, joining the compact in the near There's future? There's a number of states where it's at least under consideration. Those states currently total 108 electoral votes, which obviously that would, if all those states enacted it, that would get it significantly over the threshold. So what we've seen, to to name some examples of states that would be classified as at least purple, maybe red. Again, I I agree with you with regards to not really culturally liking that analysis. It's one of those things that's uh, not technically accurate, but still helpful in certain circumstances. So it's passed in at least one house in Arizona, at least one house in Arkansas, which I would certainly classify as a Republican voting state. It's passed in a house in in Maine, North Carolina, Oklahoma. Um, So it's it's a really... a broad swath of um, states in terms of how they're thought of um, electorally. And we're not that far. Well, so thank you for the the update on the progress because the compact still is sort of flying under the radar, not getting a ton of media attention, but, you know, maybe 
the advocates like it that way. Um, for those who are interested, uh, you can always look online and find the latest progress of the compact. You know, we post about it through our social media channels. Nationalpopularvote.com has updates in the status, um, as well as some other organizations. And if you support the compact, you know, contact your state representatives and tell them to pass it if they haven't already. If they have passed it, tell them not to repeal it because that's something that I think some state legislators are proposing. And, you know, I think there's a very good chance we'll see this enacted within the next five years and maybe even sooner than that. Yeah, I mean, that, and what you just said um, is a realistic concern too, as we get closer to 270 that like say a state might be like, oh, we, we like doing this when we when, when it was a way to be popular and show our voters that we care about democracy and the will of the voter. But now this might actually become reality. We want to find a way to, to scuttle this. So if, if your state is making steps to do that and you don't like it, you definitely want to make your voice heard. Absolutely. So now I want to turn from the national issue of the Electoral College to a, a local victory that we had recently in Los Angeles um, regarding public publicly financed elections in the city of Los Angeles. What we had was a 12 to 1 vote from the Los Angeles City Council in favor of essentially making it easier for candidates running for local office to obtain matching funds. And what it was was that the previous threshold for even qualifying for matching funds, like before you could even qualify for funds, you had to raise $22,000, which is a lot. And it's not easy in a local election to raise that amount of money. And if the idea of public financing is to kind of magnify small small donors and encourage candidates to really get out in the community, you want to lower the threshold and make it easier for them to qualify for those matching funds. So what we advocated for was cutting that threshold in half to $11,400 to make it easier for candidates running for office to obtain matching funds. It's still not easy to raise that amount of money, but it, it's easier than it was. Um, once you know this reform is enacted, it'll be easier than it was. And it should have a lot of positive effects, including increasing the diversity of candidates running for office and the diversity of people contributing to campaigns. So that's a small victory, and we are very proud at Citizens Take Action to have played a small role in it. But I thought it would be a good springboard to talk about publicly financed elections in general, because even if you don't live in Los Angeles, your city might have a public financing program or might be considering one. Or if they don't have one, maybe you want to propose one. So, John, we usually talk about publicly financed elections as if they're you know, definitely a good thing and everyone agrees with us, but I thought it'd be worth it to make the case for why they're desirable. So why, why do you think that publicly financed elections are a good thing and a positive reform and something we should I mean, fight for and be I'd like to make both the argument and the counter-argument, unless you want to make the counter-argument. I think it's sort of helpful to think about the positives and negatives of them. I mean, no, the positives, I think, are, especially with local elections, I think are really, are really significant because especially in a local election where the, the amount of money can have such, I mean, amount of money obviously in politics has an outsized impact, period. But given, you know, that in local elections, people are, it's not going to be easy to raise large amounts of money, um, typically, it just creates such an outsized impact if somebody's like self-funded or has access to a few 
you know, you know, has access to like maybe a special interest or something that wants to fund them and, and having public funding in an election like that can really level a playing field and allow what I think look, especially local elections are intended for, which is to provide access to political agency and power to members of the community. Um, and to provide that access for members of the community to run for office and to and to serve literally as representatives of their community. So I think that's that's hugely important. Obviously, on the national level, there's value too in terms of having public financing because I I think what we perceive as sort of some of the biggest problems with money politics, which we've talked about, I'm sure at great length on some of our other podcasts. Um, but I mean, in terms of special interests. We've seen like these self-cunded candidates when you see somebody like Tom Steyer running or Andrew Yang running, these people who may not really have much or any in the way of an actual constituency that supports them, but they're able to have an outsized impact maybe on the election because they're willing to spend essentially unlimited amounts of their own money. And is that really how our democracies see is supposed to work? What would you say is the primary um, counter-argument I mean, against public I would say one of the biggest election? counter-arguments to me is just how much taxpayer money we want to um, spend on this. Any expenditure of public funds comes at the cost of something else that public funds could be spent on or at greater taxes. And, you know, let's say taxes aren't going to be raised, like, if public funding of elections is going to take money away from education or health care or protecting the environment or, you know, I'm, I'm kind of giving a maybe an ideologically biased list of things that money could be spent on, but or the military or anything else that voters might also care about their money being spent on that. There's always a push. There's always a push and pull on that. So I would say that's that's one major factor. I would say another argument is that I don't, I don't necessarily agree with this, but is there's an argument that the ability to raise money, especially with the success we've seen with, say, Obama or Bernie Sanders have with raising money from small donors, like is something that shows that a candidate is viable. And that's sort of a pro- part of the process, too. And should, sorry, Marianne, I'm about to offend a whole nother list of voters, but should Mary, should our taxpayer money be going to like fund Marianne? Williamson's campaign? Where do we draw the thresholds of like viability for what our money is going for? No, well, I think that I think you gave a good overview of sort of the pros and cons. In terms of the big money issue, it's just the more public financing we have, the less candidates need to be beholden to big money or, you know, wealthy donors. And I think that's a good thing. Um, And as you touched on, you know, it's really important, especially early in an election to have seed money or to have that public financing kick in because if it the threshold is too high and you're running for office trying to qualify for public funds but you only do it you know with a month or two to go in the election you're already far behind someone else um, because early money can help you get those early endorsements and early volunteers and attract more donors uh, it's really do you know important to have that from the for? beginning Emily's not a person. Emily is an acronym that stands for early money is like yeast, which is very accurate, especially when you have like, say, hypothetically in this Democratic field where you have 25 people running. I think that's the count now. Um, Being able to differentiate yourself from that field, especially if you're not somebody who's formerly a vice president or somebody had a very well publicized run for president four years ago to 
stand out in that field, the ability to raise money early on is essential. I think that you want to have a balance where the public financing is not the sole source or the primary source necessarily, so much so that it it obscures the actual level of public support somebody has. And the matching funds, I think, is a good way to do that because it's magnifying the donors that you already have. Um, and then, you know, there's that democracy voucher program in Seattle where every voter gets four $25 vouchers they can give to a candidate of their choice, like which is another way to do it. I I'm like that sure. last idea. Yeah, I'm not sure what exactly the pros and cons of, of either approach is. I know the Seattle program didn't didn't have a lot of people using the vouchers, but it's early and hopefully with more education people will you know, do so and use them because it doesn't cost them anything to, to support the candidate of their choice. But there are a lot of different matching funds or uh, programs out there. And as to that counter argument that you know, the tax dollars, you know, it's certainly legitimate concern to think about the trade-offs. But on the other hand, I think that uh, matching funds are one of those things or public financing is one of those things where you get a positive return on investment because if you have better candidates who are more connected to the community, who reflect smaller donors, you're more likely to have policies that benefit the community as a whole instead of special interests. And it sort of pays for itself, whether it's through a better school system or community policing or things like that. But a social scientist can prove that better than I can on this episode. But you know that's why I'm not so persuaded that the tax dollars is is such a concern that and I especially we think those concerns. I mean, I was, I think they're certainly more, at least for me, more concerning with regards to national elections and probably local elections where I think like a, the cost of a city council race, you know, say in a smaller community should not be, or even like a relatively middle-sized city is not exorbitant. So it's not going to put a huge dent in the, um, the taxpayer budget to provide that. Yeah, absolutely. And one last point I wanted to make, about the public financing activists in Los Angeles before we move on is I was uh, I was on the ground with the activists who you know spearheaded this campaign and Citizens Take Action was a part of the coalition with other organizations out there like Common Cause and a group called Unrig LA um, and the League of Women Voters oh, that were advocating for this but really. There was one activist, um, and I don't know if he wa- he'd want me to name his name on the podcast, so I won't do it, but there was one activist who really led the charge on this, and he's, he's not affiliated with any organization. He's just a passionate, concerned citizen who put in the work and met with city members of city council and you know kept meeting with them and trying to move forward and organize people, and it took a lot of effort and months and time and energy, but we're at the finish line, at least on the lowering the aggregate threshold. And it's just a testament to what a small group of people can accomplish if they're persistent and focused. And if you're listening out there and you support publicly financed elections, but your city doesn't have them or your state doesn't have them, you know, it's the kind of thing that you should take to your local city council member or legislator and propose because there are a lot of models out there that they can copy and choose from. And it's not out of the question that it happens if you just get a small group of people behind you. So, you know, I was most excited to see that 
the dedicated activists, hard work paid off. And it was one of those inspiring things where money in politics can be a bleak issue, but sometimes you feel like, okay, we're making incremental progress. And I was really thrilled to see that happen. People can have the ability to have more impact than they think. And sometimes the best way to have the most impact is on local is on local issues where people a lot of times I think lose sight of how important they are because national issues are also extremely important but if you care about local issues and your and issues that directly affect your community there's a lot of opportunity to to have like a more significant immediate impact that maybe you can have on national issues so it's always something to keep in mind when you're looking on ways to get involved and how you can actually have the most impact All right. So next, I wanted to turn to addressing two of the most common arguments that people make uh, to oppose campaign finance reform or to oppose getting big money out of politics, because I've I've heard them come up at conferences or at a panel event or even in congressional offices when I'm meeting with staffers. So I thought it would be good for us to articulate and then address those arguments Um, And so those two arguments, and there are plenty of others, but these are two that come up the most. One is that big money in politics isn't a problem because compared to some other things, we actually don't spend that much on political campaigns. And John, you touched on this a little earlier about how spending compares uh, today, how it did in 1992 or in the past. But some people would say, look, we spend more on Halloween decorations or Halloween candy, or we spend more on March Madness betting pools than we do on political elections. So how can there be too much money in politics? And then the second argument that comes up so much is that, well, campaign finance reform is limiting free speech. It's inhibiting people's ability to express themselves and express their political opinion. And therefore, it's not something that should be constitutional or permissible. Um, so those are the two counter arguments. And John, I was going to turn it to you to say, to ask which one you prefer to kind of speak on first. And then I can, we can go back and forth and I can take the lead on the other one. I was, I was talking already a little bit about the issues with money spent in elections. And I do think it is worth reiterating, like how much more we spend on elections, even if you obviously account for inflation and all that relative to how much we used to in the relatively recent past, it's shot up by a huge amount. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna weigh in on how much we spend in society on Halloween candy or decoration. I was gonna Thank jump you. in real quick just to put a number on it. In 2018, midterm election uh, spending surpassed five billion dollars. So that's a number to put out there if you're curious how much we do spend on political elections. Five billion maybe by the standards of federal budgets, crazily enough, is not a huge amount of money relative to the size of federal budgets, but it's still a lot of money. And you you know, again, I, I think everyone, regardless of where, you know, whether they're where they fall in, in terms of, you know, fiscal conservatism, fiscal more liberal, and all of that politically. I think we can all agree that nobody wants to pay pay more on taxes than they have to, and nobody wants to see their money. You know, there's plenty of things that whatever pool of tax money there is, there's plenty of worthy things that money could be spent on. So whether it's five billion or five trillion or five million, we don't want money not being used in the best way possible to benefit society. So there's that. And second of all, I think perhaps more importantly with regards to this this topic is it's not about the total amount of money regard relative to like what other things spent on society. It's about the outsized impact that money has on 
elections and our democracy. And I think we've seen pretty clearly that that number, whatever it is, is having an impact on elections. It's having an impact on the types of candidates that we have. It's having an impact on the types of issues that are that are up for discussion and the and the, the viewpoints of candidates on issues. You know, we can point to innumerable examples. You can talk about guns with the NRA. You can talk about the healthcare lobby. You can talk about education lobby. You can talk about union lobbies. You know, you, you might happen to, let's say, hypothetically, somebody might be pro-gun rights to some extent and, you know, not necessarily, you know, want a tremendous amount of restrictions on guns and also acknowledge that it's not a good thing for society when politicians are making decisions about gun laws, not because of their actual viewpoint on the issue or the viewpoint of the um, people in their communities that they're supposed to be representing, but because of how much money they're getting from special interest groups. It's not always, I don't know, I'm a very much a process over results person. And even if you agree or disagree with the result, that's a bad process. I think we should all be able to agree on that, that politicians and parties and everyone should not be deciding their votes based on, on who they're, who's fundraising for them. I want to make two points to sort of piggyback on yours or add on to yours. And one is I'll steal from Adam Winkler, the uh, constitutional law professor, who said that politics is important and we should spend a lot of money on it. So I'd agree to an extent that you know the sheer amount of money we spend isn't necessarily the problem or or a lack of a problem, but it's really the the breakdown of the distribution of money and how much of it is coming from such a tiny group of people and as you said the influence that it has. And to put hard numbers on it, in that 2018 election cycle over 70% of campaign contributions came from less than 0.5% of Americans. So it's not necessarily the amount of money being spent that's a problem because you could envision a world where every American spends $20 on elections and that would add up to a lot of money, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. But when so much money is coming from just a few donors and corporations and unions, that's a bad thing. And it's bad because of exactly what you said, when the special interests have undue influence, as a result, legislators are voting with kind of too keen an interest in supporting the already powerful interest or uh, special interests have too much influence on given issues. And, you know, you mentioned gun violence in the NRA, and I think that's actually a good example because there are a lot of, of gun owners and people who would identify as pro-Second Amendment who also support reforms like, you know, closing loopholes for background checks or ensuring that people on the no-fly list can't have easy access to a gun. And so the majority of Americans support those reforms, including gun owners, yet the NRA opposes them. And the end result in Congress is that those reforms never pass. And you look at public opinion and you think, well, it should pass. Why isn't it? And then you look at the NRA's spending and you go, oh, that's why. And on so, so many issues, you can make that sad calculus of the public wants one thing, legislators do another. And what's the explanation? 
will look at who's spending and where the campaign spending is coming from. That's a good from. point. Also, with the NRA, Sadly, not, that's I guess often we're, the explanation. We're piling, we're piling on the NRA a little bit here. Sorry, sorry, NRA. But I think the NRA is a good example of an organization where I think you could reasonably argue that they don't really represent the group. They that they don't really, in a meaningful way, necessarily represent the interests of the group that they promote themselves as in a complete way. I mean, obviously, they do to some extent, like. Because, like, as you said, a lot of gun owners, which is the group that the NRA purports to represent, don't agree with the NRA and a lot of these things. And that's because the reality is the NRA does not really res- – and, and this is – you know, the NRA is not unique in this among big money big money groups. The NRA doesn't necessarily really represent the interests of gun owners. They represent the interests of gun manufacturers and other big contributors to the NRA, not necessarily the individual gun owner who might, again, support – their right to have a gun, but doesn't necessarily expect to necessarily support every the entire package of you know fairly extreme stances against gun regulation that the NRA stands for. And to not pile on any specific organization, because as you said, I think there's a difference between your average NRA member and the NRA's lobbying arm. Um, you can make the same example for prescription drugs, where. I think it's over 80% of Americans think the government should be able to negotiate prescription drug prices like they do in other countries, or that it should be easier for generic drugs to come to market. But even though those are popularly supported, we don't have those reforms. And if you look at why, whether it's in connection with the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, or uh, you know the Bush era reforms in healthcare and prescription drugs, it's because the pharmaceutical industry has so much influence through spending and lobbyists. The ACA, which, you know, just speaking personally for myself, overall, I supported it over what we had before. But the ACA is a law that was, to some extent, written by healthcare industry lobbyists. And the reason for that is because there were legislators whose condition for voting for it was that they needed, they would not vote for it unless it had elements of it that were in the bill that were essentially written by healthcare lobbyists because that's who was funding their campaigns. Like that is, regardless of whether one supports the ACA or not, or supports any other bill, that is not the way that ideally legislation would be written in this country. No, it's, and it's not about the outcome, although the outcomes are often bad and things that you and I and most people disagree with. It's about the process. And that's not the process uh, that our founders envisioned when they created, you know, a representative democracy. Um, so I think I think we've done a reasonable job of addressing the well. We spend more money on other things, so money in politics isn't a problem issue. What about that second argument? And not to, you don't have to get too constitutional and legal with it, but just the argument that hey, restrictions on campaign spending. That's a restriction on free speech, and I, that's bad. Again, to, what do you I say agree to with that? you, like, to get into the, the First Amendment elements and all the legal, like, even, like, a basic review of the legalities is its own podcast. We should get Professor Winkler on that one. Um, he'd be great. Um, but but just to speak very briefly, without getting too much into that, just on the basic premise and why I think it's mistaken, is when you look at the First Amendment, you're talking about the voice every single one of us has as a citizen to make our voice heard, to express that, whether free, you know, publicly speaking, through media. Obviously, when the Constitution was written, they didn't envision 
the different media we have, but you know, you can make a translation from media that did exist then, like newspapers to, you know, television, internet, what have you. Um, and also the ability all of us just have to exercise that speech through activities because it's also was the part the first one was intended to refer to religion and things like that. And I think that it's just so obviously with even like any reading of the Constitution and that and that amendment that that's just a huge leap to go from the right of any all of us as a citizen to make our voice heard through any type of media that we choose or just out in the world versus money, which whether this is a good thing or not, we can is another discussion. But, you know, just mathematically say Tom Steyer, his dollar speech is thousands of times more multiple than, you know, somebody who doesn't who isn't a billionaire. And Tom Steyer and the person who isn't a billionaire, like both of us, sadly, would love to be a billionaire, but I'm not one. Both Tom Steyer and I can go out in a public sphere and talk. We can both go on Facebook and make a posting. Those are all things we can do, but we do not have the same voice when it comes to money. And to apply that money is speech so like inherently self-defeats the whole purpose of giving every person the right to make their voice heard because one voice has thousands of has has like six more zeros next to it to than another. And it clearly defeats the purpose for which the First Amendment was intended, which was to give the right of every person in this country, you know, with, with certain limits, again, as anyone who went to law school know, you can't say, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there are limits on speech, but within those limits, it's intended so that a person can say what they want to say, have an opinion that, that the government or other people might not agree with, practice a religion that other people might not agree with or practice. It's, and that's just very different than saying your money is speech. You can saying that you can't spend unlimited amounts of money is the same as saying that you're not allowed to practice your religion or that you can't go out in a public square and say you disagree with the current president. Like those are just very obviously different things to me. I think that the fire in the crowded theater example is one I've used before when speaking to people about, well, look, we regulate speech all the time, not just fire in the crowded theater, but we punish fraudulent speech, defamatory speech, slanderous speech, dishonest speech, all, all sorts of things. I'd say there's two schools of thought that you can pick up, not just through like the Supreme Court's thinking, but through the way... Um, non-legally trained people discuss it as well. And the two schools of thought are sort of one, more speech is better. So, you know, the more speech, the better. And that's kind of how the Supreme Court has handled these, these campaign finance cases recently is, oh, it's more speech. It must be good. It means more ideas in our democracy. It's a good thing. And I don't really buy that idea because I, I instead support the second approach, which is that you need some level of regulation and you're trying to strive for a competitive marketplace of ideas and a level playing field and a real debate and discussion and not just more speech is, is good. And, you know, the example you provided with Tom Steyer, I think, is a good one because under this money is speech and all speech is good approach, what you really end up with is a situation where the vast majority of Americans can only muster the equivalent of whispering to their elected officials with a small campaign contribution. 
And then the Michael Bloombergs and Tom Steyers and Koch brothers and Sheldon Adelsons of the world essentially have a megaphone with which they can yell into legislators' ears and tell them what they want. And then, and I feel like, and I feel like both the left and right have have made the mistake because you know we all fall into the trap of oh we agree with that basically so that's good and we sort of ceded our voice and our agency to a handful of people on both sides because there's a left and right version of this where it's like all right well Tom Steyer will speak for us if you're more left or the Koch brothers or Sheldon Adelson will speak for us more right and that's just fundamentally not how it's supposed to be again whether or not you agree with those people is beside the point i think the problem is that we should not be ceding our democratic voice to a handful of people whose only qualifications not say they're all bad people because i don't believe in judging it's not a moral judgment positively or negatively but whose only qualification for having that outside voice is that they have a lot of money that's just not how the democracy should function No. And it's really about whether you believe in the value of a monologue versus the value of a debate. And I think that we should, from time to time, limit the speech of certain people, you know, not shut them up completely, but maybe limit the amount that they can talk or the amount that they can express themselves so that other people can be heard. So to the people who would say that, well, Campaign finance or campaign spending limits are bad because they restrict free speech. I would say actually what we're trying to do is enhance the overall debate and discussion so that everyone has a meaningful opportunity to be heard and participate in the democracy. And not that people should have an outsized influence, as you said, not just outsized, but thousands of times more influence than others just because they're rich, because as decent a person as Tom Steyer may be, you know, he doesn't speak for you or I, and his ideas aren't any better just because he's rich. And, you know, his ideas shouldn't have that extra amplification or platform because of that. So that's sort of my, my thoughts on the issue. And I think we're generally on the same page. All right. So we, we covered a lot of ground with the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, publicly financed elections, and addressing two of the most common arguments against campaign finance reform. Again, if you're interested in action items, find out what's going on with the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact where you live and see if you can get involved. And if it's already passed in your state, you can also tell a friend in another state where it hasn't yet passed. Um, you know, consider approaching your local elected official about a publicly financed elections in your city or strengthening the program that you already have. And if anyone tells you that uh, campaign spending limits are an impermissible restriction on free speech, just ask him, ask them if they think that the person at their next city council meeting should be able to talk for two hours straight with nobody else given an opportunity. I don't think we want that. If you've ever been to a city council meeting, I think we can all agree yeah, that and we do not want that. So, John, thank you again for joining me. And we will be back soon with another episode of the Citizens Take Action podcast. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And don't forget, if you're interested in supporting the organization or the podcast, you can donate through our website at citizenstakeaction.org. For John Landis, I'm David Edward Burke, signing off.